thank you everyone for joining us today. Sorry for the, the slight delay in getting it started, but we're we're glad to see everyone here on the call and and joining us for our, I guess it's the fall edition of our quarterly tea. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, as is always the case, please feel free to send your questions in to anyone on the team. You can reach us at info at raccoongroup.com if you don't want to send emails to anyone specific, or you can also just raise your hand and ask a question here, or, or even call the office if you wanted uh, to really ask a question there as well. So um, anyways, we're we're happy to see you all, and we'll, we'll go ahead and dive into it. Did you want to start with questions today, Rob, or should we... Good morning. Let's see uh, if we have any any burning questions in the in the audience, or even non-burning questions. Yeah, it can be questions or even topics of interest today. I uh, wonder, with the um, current state of world affairs, how uh, that's going to affect interest rates. Usually, people ask how it's going to affect oil prices. Well, I already figured that oil's going up. <laughs> oil goes up, and so prices go up, so inflation goes up, so interest rates go up. There you go. Yep, I, I think that would be the case, right, is that as we look at it with inflation being the worry that the Fed is trying to battle inflation by raising interest rates, that uh, anything that creates an impact to the price of oil, making oil go higher, would also increase the inflation rate, which would further incentivize the Fed to either keep rates higher for longer or also have them raise rates further than they in, you know, are planning on at the moment. I think right now, when what we've seen with oil and oil prices over you know, the past week, really, we haven't seen oil move all that much over the past week. And so I think the market is pricing little impact into oil prices at the moment. But uh, if it, you know, if conflict remains sort of sustained, or if the conflict grows and impacts more of the Middle East, there's certainly the possibility that uh, oil prices will continue higher in some in some meaningful way that would then you know create more inflation in the U.S. and you know lead to higher interest rates in the long term. And it's quite likely that it will escalate and expand the conflict, uh, both in the north and Syria and Lebanon, and potentially with Iran as well. That's that's the sort of the wild card in the scheme is that Iran is pretty much recognized as the as the director of the play and whether there's any kind of action against Iran is is what would be the most impact impactful on the oil markets since Iran has increased their production pretty close uh, considerably over the last 6 months while Saudi Arabia has curtailed its production I have a question, Rob, around this that we didn't necessarily dig into yesterday and the geopolitical piece of it and then how that reflect, you know, would impact economically. They were sharing this morning, um, I was hearing news about uh, potentially Russia, um, a lot of um, there's there are a lot of videos out there that are, you know, fake 
Um, but some of them are coming, they believe, from Russia, from what they're seeing. And I'm curious about Russia sort of weaponizing what's happening in uh, the Middle East. And, you know, would they just – I was never a political major, so <laughs> these are my areas of, of ignorance. Would they weaponize from afar? Um, is there any – they're already stretched pretty thin, it seems, with Ukraine. But how could they use what's happening in Israel and Gaza um, and Palestine? And then what is the greater impact that you would see from that? Well, this is right up Putin's alley. Remember, for a decade, Putin took advantage of America's sort of wishy-washiness in the foreign policy area and had many, many successes in Turkey and Syria, uh, flooding Europe with, with immigrants. This is exactly where Putin excels, is in u- utilizing events that upset populations in foreign countries and foreign politics to his own advantage. So he doesn't have to spend any manpower on taking advantage of this, anything that that weakens the cohesiveness if there's divisiveness in the West about, you know, the, are the Israelis oppressors or, you know, weapons and munitions be diverted from Ukraine to, to the Middle East. The same thing's going on in, in Asia with Taiwan. There's concern that China could use this as an opening to do something in the Taiwan Straits and that we don't have any longer the capability of operating in three on three major fronts, which is probably true, uh, given given the the um, you know condition of the U.S. industrial preparedness for for conflicts um, uh, or capabilities with ships. You know, it's it's this is so so Putin has. Uh, almost all upside here and no downside. Yeah, but I, I would see it kind of strategically around alliances, right? Is that anything that they can achieve where they create alliances that are go against sort of the, the Western supremacy. So it gives them a place where they can create further allegiance with Iran and with China and kind of create their own block of superpowers. I think that, that really makes sense for them strategically. And, you know, there's sort of the, you know, the, the easy target, right. Is that anytime, and that's what Rob was speaking to, I believe, right. Anytime there's conflict, it's, you find a place where it's easy to step in and kind of choose a side where there's a weakened population and you can choose a side and kind of take advantage of that. Yeah. It diverts attention from Ukraine as well. Could we see the political and economic outcome here in the U.S.? I know we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but is there any possibility or hope that um, because, you know, typically here, again, whatever um, one's beliefs are around the people, the human people who are involved in this on both sides, um, the West typically aligns behind Israel and um you know, money, military aid is is sent there. Could this um, bring any sort of unification for the West uh, that could 
have a positive economic impact to get, you know, maybe some legislation in Washington, like things might move forward. Is there any potential positive economic impact from this? Uh, uh, your, you know, economic and political impacts are can be different. Certainly the, the lack of a speaker of the House is curtailing activity in the U.S. And this is yet another reason for them to whoever it is, to get their act together and appoint a Speaker of the House so that business can resume. One of the issues in Israel, the divisiveness in Israel over the last several years is partially what, what you know created an opening or a lack of focus on their exterior enemies, whether it will bring any kind of lasting uh, cohesiveness or unity is probably unlikely in this country. It certainly will accomplish that in Israel because they, you know, without help, they will face an existential threat, which involves the the possibility that they would use tactical nuclear weapons. I have no doubt that Israel has tactical nuclear weapons and that they will use them. Um, uh, Perhaps in Iran, uh, if things get bad enough, which which they likely won't, but um, uh, there's you know hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent arming uh, the Hezbollah and Hamas, and they're they have really nothing to lose by using them. They're cooped up in the Gaza, so it's a it's an untenable situation from from the Palestinian perspective, being cooped up in in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, so it's Israel's options are, are choices between bad options. They have no good options here, and and um, so that's why the danger is so high uh, of of a spillover into into other markets and other political areas. I think the U.S. has lost so much credibility on the international front that it just I think the U.S., you know, while it still has is by far the most powerful military, we have used it uh, uh, rather ineffectively for for quite some time. So we'll see that that might be a positive outcome of this that that the country gets behind the military and the military, you know, gets its priorities and as they they talk about military readiness. Doesn't that have a great deal to do with the national psyche. In other words, when we say um, if we were to get behind it, but it appears to me that the country is in disarray, not only in political leadership, but throughout. You know, if you look at the polls, like, I mean, talking about Biden and Trump as being the two likely candidates, the majority of Americans are disgusted with that possibility. Mm -hmm. And it just shows that Americans have good sense at base instinct and that, for example, on abortion, they don't want a ban on abortion. They don't they might not want unlimited abortion, but there's a middle ground that's not being spoken for in politics today. But the great majority of people, I think, in both places want a reasonable solution to the issues. 
you know, that that's just not being that's just not coming forward in policy or implementation. I would just say I, I sort of see, you know, when we think of that national psyche is that psyche really forces people to choose a side right now. It's kind of it's either this or that. Right. And that's what we see with the politics. And we see currently, you know, in in the in Congress, right, is that you really have to choose a side. And so people are going to be looking to the political leaders to say what side they're on or what type of action we should be taking when it comes to kind of conflicts anywhere, but especially here in the Middle East. And I think there will be a lot of kind of side taking, which which impacts kind of how we get behind anything, right? Because you don't have that kind of unity around any topic. You really are forced to choose a side according to the way that political leaders are. And we're not necessarily forced as individuals, but that's that's how it comes out, you know, in the masses or in the, you know, in kind of the news, say, right, is that you see that psyche saying you got to choose a side and your side may be for conflict or or more sort of just let U.S. run on its own. That's true. There's a lot of isolationists in both parties. The markets just really haven't reacted. It's almost like they don't care about the conflict um, because they might care more about interest rates and and the and the ten year treasury rate because that's that's what we're focused on, and maybe that's a good thing that the economies are big enough and strong enough that uh, we certainly have the ability to replace oil production from the Middle East domestically, right? That that capacity exists in the United States. It's not promoted now. It will happen. It will be back. Kyle was talking about his friend who kind of monitors the you know future permit activity or future drilling activity. And domestic energy production will come back sort of disruptions overseas, like in Europe, Europe experiencing the cutoff of of Russian natural gas, right, makes Europe look for alternatives. And and there are alternatives. The U.S. natural gas is an alternative for Europe, and they have their own domestic uh, reserves of natural gas. I think the impact of sort of an upset like this will have long-term economic effects and they could be positive and you know by diversifying the energy sources of of the economy that would be i think a positive economic effect of something like this going back to karen's point well all we any of us have to do is to look in our recycling bin and see the amount of plastic and that alone will keep our domestic oil fields pumping. Absolutely. Kyle was talking yesterday about electric vehicles and the economic opportunity that that presents. And I don't know, Kyle was talking about electric airplanes, I think. Were you? Or is that well, you, model airplanes? You had mentioned electric airplanes. That, uh, he would believe in electric cars once there were electric airplanes, was Rob's comment yesterday. Right. But um, The idea is that you know, we were talking a lot about how a company like Exxon chose to make the acquisition of Pioneer Resources this past week. 
and they're really doubling down. They've moved away from this idea of clean energy or uh, so-called green energy and, and really focus on saying, hey, natural resources is what we what we deal with. And let's go all in on this because they think that there's an extended runway there. And it really comes back to that is that everything uses oil in some way uh, or petroleum, right, in some way to to be produced, right? When you think of all the plastics, right? Plastics are not produced without without oil. And uh, so they really believe that if we go out another 20 years, that we're still going to be relying on it, even if it's not necessarily powering the, the cars we drive each day. Did you want to speak, Kyle, about the morning inflation numbers and the Fed? And Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's still a, a little fresh from today, uh, putting us on the spot for this morning's inflation read. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so anyways, inflation for the period came in, I believe, at at point four, which will give us the I think annually that leads us in that leaves us in the threes for the year. Uh, 3.4% inflation if it were annualized. Uh, the estimate was that inflation was going to come in at 0.3. And so when it came in at 0.4, that means it's slightly higher. So being a little bit more stubborn than than we had hoped. And what that really means is, I mean, the Fed's going to continue with a one more rate increase uh, before the end of the year. And uh, if we continue to see inflation be persistent, there's this idea of kind of higher for longer, where the U.S. could continue to hold interest rates at that higher level. Last year, the talking point was, oh, in 2023, we'll start to see interest rates come back down uh, because the economy will soften, we'll see a recession, and uh, that did not occur in 2023. And so now the talking points have moved it into 2024, where they're projecting that, okay, inflation is going to weaken, the economy is going to weaken, and we'll start to see interest rates pull back around mid-next year. I would still be cautious about that projection even. I think that we're likely to see interest rates hold for kind of an extended period that people really aren't expecting. The reason is to combat inflation, but it makes for nice opportunities when it comes to savers, people who want to put their money away, want conservative investments in U.S. treasuries or money markets. Uh, it certainly offers that opportunity a little bit in the short term for for people, but it creates other problems where you have very high mortgage rates, high borrowing rates if you want to purchase a vehicle. Uh, it creates other problems within the economy because they're trying to create less ac economic activity. Has that been successful, creating less economic activity so far? Uh, slowly, you know, I mean, the inflation has come down, at least reported inflation. I know there's always an argument there, but I think there's the primary areas, and we talked about housing some yesterday, but uh, housing remains really resilient in its pricing. And so you'd like to see house prices come down more, rental prices come down more, and those have been a little sticky. The expectation is for the unemployment rate to go up, but the unemployment rate has been really stubborn as well. There still remains more job openings than there are people who want to work here, uh, which then creates increases in, in wages because you're competing for a limited set of workers and so you have that increase in wages kind of makes people continue to spend 
and they're spending on goods, you know, and, and so you keep having wages go up, but inflation is cooling slowly. So you have kind of a, a double problem, right? Is that people are now making more money with prices slowly kind of being tamed and then it creates more spending power and then should start to increase inflation, which the Fed is trying to to fight. So it has not been the most effective, but the numbers would say it it has been. So you mentioned real estate, Kyle. Do you want to talk about that and equities where you where equities have been and where you see them going? Mm-hmm. Sure. Happy to. Yeah, I mean, uh, real estate as a whole is down slightly this year. We've, you know, we've seen kind of the impacts of higher interest rates impact real estate, both commercial and residential. Uh, on the residential side, just kind of statistically, we were talking, talked to a, a realtor here in Santa Fe, and we've seen, you know, at its peak, when the prices were at its peak, we were seeing homes on the market for an average of about 30 days in the Santa Fe County market. And, you know, with the higher interest rates and limited inventory, we're seeing about a hundred days on market now. So that's tripled kind of from the peak and it continues to move upward. So there is slowing there in the housing market, but it's really, I think it has to do with the high interest rates. Mortgage rates are around seven and a half percent right now. So if you're a buyer, you're, you're pretty limited. And then prices remain really high. Uh, something we talked about yesterday is that the average holder of a mortgage, their mortgage rate is 3.6%. And so if we look at 3.6% versus 7.5, there's really, there's very little incentive for people to move out of an existing mortgage. Uh, the other interesting statistic that we saw or talked about yesterday is that right now, 57% of homeowners are over the age of 55. So when we look at that population set, people over the age of 55 are much less likely to move. They're kind of settled in a little bit more. And so you have kind of two competing issues, right? Is that you have you have people that don't really want to move and then you have people that don't have an incentive move to move because their mortgage rates are so low. And that keeps supply really low, which then in turn keeps prices up for longer. Uh, Bonita just gave me a good stat here. So we'll just share it because... We look at Santa Fe and the Santa Fe market. I think the Santa Fe, the average home price in Santa Fe is now six hundred and four thousand dollars. So, which is which is pretty significant uh, when you think about it. And it really it prices out the majority of kind of the working class people in Santa Fe from from being able to own a home here. Um, As I recall, so, Kyle, that's come down though from mid from sort of mid pandemic. Now, wasn't it at, like yeah, when when house prices were at their peak, it was close yeah. to closer to 700. Yeah. So we have seen the average price come down here, but it's still it's still up around 30%, I think, from kind of what was the the normal trending. You know, when we look at it on equity side, so if we move on from kind of real estate and we think about the stock market itself, the stock market has really been reacting to what it believes is positive news. Uh, we talk a lot about kind of there's there's two mixed signals is that the bond markets say that we should be bearish about the economy. 
which means that we should expect the economy to worsen because you see kind of the what is the inverted yield curve, which means you can get five percent on a five point four percent on a one year bond and you get less than five percent on a ten year bond, right? And so higher rates for short shorter durations on your bonds. And uh basically what that means is they expect rates to come down because the economy will worsen and inflation will come down. So uh, the bond market thinks that things are bad. Now, if you were to look at the stock market, the stock market thinks things are pretty, pretty good right now. The S&P is up about 14% so far this year. The NASDAQ is up around 40%. Uh, we saw some pullback in both those markets in, in September, but they're both kind of, you know, fighting back a little bit so far in, into October now. And uh, really what they're seeing is any good news they're creating optimism in the stock markets. Uh, corporations originally in 2022 started to drop their earnings per share estimates. And again, this year, they're starting to raise them back up. So we're starting to see raised estimates, uh, growth percent around, I think, 6.8% above the inflation level is the estimate for most corporate earnings for next year the possibility of the stock market is really kind of increasing and people are very optimistic there. And so really it, it is the case of who's right, you know, or is the bond market making the right signal or the, or the equity markets really kind of pointing towards, you know, avoidance of a recession or a very light recession and then a real positive kind of upswing from there. And what's your best guess, Kyle? I still think economically, that there are a lot of positives in the U.S. We, we've talked a lot about that as the, the U.S. is sort of in the, in the best position, I think it could be when compared to many of the other economies around the world. And so there's still a lot of strength there. I think valuations may be a little high in the U.S. Everyone, each year you get advice from salespeople who tell you that this is the year that internationals outperform the U.S. And for eight years straight, they've been telling us that, and uh, for eight years straight, they've they've been wrong, and and it's because of valuations, right? European valuations are far below those of the U.S., and we just we continue to think that the U.S. market is just a better market to be in, even though the valuations are higher because the corporations are really. We have Rob always talks about the kind of entrepreneurial spirit in the U.S. But uh, really, the corporations based here are, are performing well, and there's kind of a a goal towards growth that's constant in the U.S. stock market. And so the dollars continue to flow into that point. And I think I would say that, you know, if we look over the extended two-year period, that you certainly, I would still favor equities. But, you know, if you if you're looking to take away and this is, of course, dependent on your own situation, and we're happy to discuss that with you and, and be specific for your for your particular portfolio. But uh, if we were to look at it and you want to be a saver, it's not a bad time to be a saver either because there's there's a lot of great opportunities where you can be conservative and actually actually make money right now. I think it's been interesting. We've had a lot of clients come to us in this time, as as with any other time, but it's a different question right now with you know borrowing versus, um, you know, maybe selling something in their portfolio to pay the IRS, for example, 
or, um, <laughs> you know, or, um, some other purchase, whether it's a car, um, and just, you know, given where interest rates are right now and, and what you can earn in a money market and all those things, just weighing those questions looks really different than it did a few years ago when, you know, we were saying, yeah, you can borrow at zero. <laughs> Great. Go for it. You know, let your money work for you in the market. But, um, but it's interesting right now with, with lending rates so high and credit card rates so high. Interest rates have gone up and um, it has impacted the real estate market uh, nationwide. There's a lot of written material about the involvement of hedge funds and institutional money in rent the rental market. The price in, uh, of rentals is quite high, but it's, it's hard for those institutions that I think over the pandemic, they, they bought between one and $2 million single family residences in the country became owned by institutions who were in it in sort of a bulk wholesale business to become renters. People, people do prefer single family residences over apartments. Um, but it's a lot of work. And as all of us know who have homes, they they need a lot of attention and money. The, the the big question really is is when will people start to lower their prices? As Kyle talked about or Bonita pointed out, the price in Santa Fe will will prices come down so that they become more affordable? And what's the what's the entry price for a home that that you might get you know on the south side of town? I I think it's going to be. Similar to that median price, we're talking about a, we're talking about a subdivision near the Santa Fe Brewing Company here, out there on on Highway 14. I think those are the average price is around six hundred thousand for those, for for right for a tract home, uh, wow. on the south side of town. Yeah, so that's that's one contributor to inflation. Is uh, the price of uh, of the of homes of of automobiles, or groceries, eating out? I don't know if anyone can eat out anymore for less than you know thirty dollars a person. I it's, took my son to Bumblebee, which is you know we think of as like cheap and cheerful. Several weeks ago, granted he's a teenager, he ordered five shrimp tacos. However. For the two of us, and I just get like a salad with some salmon. For the two of us, it's well over $60 now. Well right. over. Yep. Because I, meat, you know, goods, all of that have gone up so much. And there's, I think the labor situation may be a little better than it was during the pandemic, but I think restaurants are still having trouble finding people to work. Um, I think they're restricting their number of tables and and so it kind of raises the issue of well how can how can people afford groceries at this level how can how can you know uh people that are that are you know working for other people in shops and teachers it's it's just hard to imagine and of course this is one of the reasons the fed has raised rates is to try and get 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 all prices to come down, but um, I don't know. I I, I think I think there's a, there's a there are other factors involved 
in 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 this and employment is one of them. Kyle, you you have some numbers on employment, right? You have some some observations about US employment. The employment rate uh remaining around 3.7%, but then one of the things we were noting before is just that what we're starting to see is rather than major layoffs, we're seeing a lot of hours cuts and so we're starting to see people be less well off because they're starting to cut their hours. So people, although they may be earning more on an hourly rate, they're actually going to be netting less because they'll be working fewer hours. Uh, the other piece there is that it continues to hold the unemployment rate where it is, right? Because they're not unemployed. They're just they're getting into a state of what right is referred to as underemployed is what we're starting to see in uh, there was a major buildup of savings, both from stimulus and, and other sources that people had built up. And we've really seen that decline over the past couple quarters. So there was this point where people had kind of put money aside and planned for sort of these rainy days, although they're not spending like it's rainy days. They're spending on, on kind of the uh, consumer discretionary goods. Uh, but really we're starting to see people's savings dwindle and we really should be moving into kind of a different time uh, through the fourth quarter because people don't have the savings they had before and they don't have the hours to work. So you, you can tell by the news that there's a lot of labor uh, disputes and negotiation going on and the 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 writers, the automobile workers, the Kaiser healthcare workers, and I read that the Kaiser people went back to work even before there was a settlement. Most of the time, labor is getting what it wants in terms of wage increases, fewer work hours, uh, higher wages, some kind of guarantees. Is you, you think that's the case, Kyle? Is that inflationary? It is inflationary, definitely. The pace of wage increases is growing faster than the inflation rate, which just will drive inflation up further. If the economics are accurate, right, that would be the case. Yeah. So there are a lot of factors that go into into uh, the labor market and and sort of contribute to this. I'm kind of curious, Kyle, you said that the numbers show that, that prices are going down. Not that prices are going down, that inflation is going down, right? And so it's, it hasn't, it's not disinflationary at this point, but the uh -huh. rate in which prices are going up is slowing. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. So they're not going up as fast as they were. They're still going up some. Yes, exactly. Okay. You know, people who have financial assets are generally in pretty good shape, right? I mean, the the mark, stock market's up, bond yields are up, so that you can earn more, as Kyle mentioned, in with if if you have a conservative bet. Real estate owners are being rewarded, even if they don't want to sell, and no one can afford to buy. <laughs> the values still look like they're they've gone up, right? Like your property has gone up a tremendous amount. 
you know, as the baby boomers age and move, you know, need to downsize and need higher healthcare services, there'll there'll probably be some adjustments in the in the housing market in in, in a lot of parts of the country. That's kind of a lo- longer term structural issue. Kind of before we get to the end, we want to make sure that we open it up for some additional questions if there are any from the group. But <laughs> what else did you cover yesterday that we're not touching on here? Inflation, world politics, oil, real estate, oil, <laughs> EVs, investing in energy. We we did talk some about investments in energy. Uh, there was an interesting conversation that came up around, there's an article around Vermont Power, who's trying to make the decision whether or not to bury power lines and extend power lines out and uh, one of the things they were finding is that it was more efficient to place batteries in mm-hmm. households than to bury power lines and create these new kind of systems, right? And so a lot of what we think about when we talk about uh, electric vehicles is issues with the power grid. Right along that topic is that there's there's often a misaligned incentives, right, where it's like, you can improve your power grid and you can bury these lines and do it right. We talked a little bit about Hawaii yesterday as well, right? Where it's just it's just too hard, too expensive to actually get it done. And there's a variety of factors there, but it's, you know, in the long term, there's probably a real benefit to getting it done. But in the short term, it's too expensive, too costly. And so then you you start to either take shortcuts or make substitutes on it. And we're really starting to to see the impacts of that. And we we're talking a little bit about air conditioning in relation to that as well. And uh, just that everyone has air conditioning now. We really like our comforts. Uh, other than Rob, Rob, Rob is not an air conditioning man. Air conditioning has a big energy cost. And when we look at a hot summer like we had this year in Texas that was very persistent, it created a lot of problems with their energy grid. I think that's a trend we're seeing and then thinking about like, okay, where do you find investments in people that, or companies that are really solving these problems? And we're, we think we're probably a, a ways out from solving the problems. Yeah, the, the, the country has a huge need to refurbish its infrastructure, right? And I guess there was a big bill that passed and a lot of money allocated to highways and the power grid is also something that in California and, and uh, in a lot of parts of the country needs some, some work as well. So it's inflationary because they continue to put money into the economy, right? Is that you need to work on your infrastructure and working on your infrastructure means that you're infusing a variety of markets with additional money which then continues to keep inflation up. And so you kind of have the, you have your actual policy folks and then you have your monetary policy, right? And the two of them are sort of in conflict at the moment. That's a good point. You know, it's, if you have uh, people working on the highways, private individuals that want to hire the same equipment have to pay a lot more. And that's certainly the case in Western North Carolina where they they work on the highways constantly and you cannot find grading equipment without paying through the nose 
for it. There's a there's an economic term called crowding out, the crowding out effect, which means that when the government raises its spending, it crowds out private investment. America has a lot of pent up demand for housing and consumer goods and all of those things is what is why the Fed is unlikely to be able to lower interest rates. And I think the markets are getting used to that, really. The stock market is kind of shrugging it off, kind of like it shrugs off the Mideast at the moment. It's saying, well, well, really the question is, what else are you going to do with your money, right? That's what are your alternate uh, places to put your money to get a return? I, I, I would agree. Yeah, well, I mean, everything looks different when we see interest rates at 5% and we see inflation at, say, it's 4%, 4.5%, right? Is that, yeah, we can go out and you can get 5% on your money, but are you only getting real returns of that half percent above inflation, right? And so it creates that desire to go back into risk assets like the stock market and real estate because you're having to produce over kind of a certain amount to really make a difference in your life with your assets. I had a question about who really understands the consequences of the conversion to electric vehicles and who is looking at the, the really big picture. It seems that there is a lot of um, emotional excitement about the conversion, but does anybody really anticipate what the consequences are? Um, the like there are environmental consequences, of course. On one hand, if one buys a electric vehicle and then charges it off the grid, and the grid is being powered by coal, that doesn't help. So that there has to be some sort of balance as to where the electric power is coming from. That's on the environmental side. And then on the economic side, what is the consequence of making all these conversions? I read a, an analysis recently that said that if we converted all of our cars to EVs right now, that the rest of the grid would not be able to make up for the missing um, or for the used electricity. And so I'm wondering, is there anybody paying attention to any of that, or we're just doing it sort of blindly? Right. Like generating your own electricity to feed your own car. Well, that's, that's beneficial, but <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, New Mexicans might have that option because of the sunshine here, uh, but still, it, it costs you $60,000 to put in a solar array, and then the battery situation is is not up to the task. There's no way to generate the amount of power. They're assuming it's going to get worked out. You make the decision no. now. A lot of that stems from the, you know, the fear of rising climate temperatures and you know, that that's, I don't know whether that's a debate or not, you know, it's in today's world, but that's, that's where much of the sort of the non-planning comes from is, a, a, is a, you know, and, and may, and it may be justified. It may not, I, I don't know, but. Well, um, definitely some similar debates between the benefit of um, fracking, for example, you know, the impact of the environment of oil and gas, and then also, um, you know, similar conversations around uh, mining for these precious metals and things that are needed for EV and the environmental impact there. 
those conversations in some ways look a little similar, just, you know, what are we doing ecologically? What are we doing to communities, et cetera? And what is the long-term impact and benefit? You know, do we benefit enough from getting those, those um, materials that are needed for EV to offset the cost perhaps to the mining or whatever? It's an, it is an interesting um, dilemma. I wanted, if we can, we have two minutes left. I wanted to make an introduction for those at least here. We're going to send out a formal introduction, but Jordan Borella, I don't know where he is on your screen. He's in my top right-hand corner. Um, He's our new associate advisor who joined the team. So we just wanted to welcome him. And if you get a phone call or an email from Jordan, uh, you'll know that it's real. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we have not hired an AI employee yet. <laughs> we'll save that for the future. But uh, again, we really want to thank everyone for joining us today. If you have questions that were kind of burning inside that didn't get answered today, please feel free to, to send any one of us an email and we're happy to answer or give us a call. And, uh, you know, we're always around, but we appreciate you all and, and look forward to the next time we're together. Thanks, everyone. Be well. The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.